Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Our scripture reading this morning is uh, once again Colossians 1 15 through 20. Let's stand. Uh, for the reading of God's Word, if you're able, out of reverence. For this is, this is the actual Word of God that we have the privilege of reading and hearing this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The very word of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise that when it is preached, when it is proclaimed, it will not return void. You will accomplish your purposes this morning in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that Your Spirit would be our teacher now, that Your Spirit would work by and with Your Word to change our lives, that we would know You more, that we would love You more. We thank You for this Word and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On August 31st, 2006, one year ago, Jeanette and I experienced a life-changing event. It it literally changed history for us. The story of our lives from that point on would be radically different from what it had been before. On that day, our son Jack was born. Our lives would never be the same as they were before that day. And this, I'm sure, is the experience for all first-time parents. Johnson & Johnson actually used the slogan, I don't know if they still do this, but it used to be, A Baby Changes Everything. And that is definitely true. No longer can we just up and leave and go to dinner or just go get ice cream. Now we've got to think about a sitter. No longer, and this one hurts a little, do we get to sleep in on Saturday mornings. Because Jack doesn't know what weekends are. He doesn't understand the concept of sleeping in yet. And of course, there are much more radical changes than that as well. I became a father. Jeanette became a mother. And in that... We will never not be parents now for the rest of our lives. So our very identity was changed by this one event. Our lives would never be the same. Even history for us, our history was changed by that event. Our world was different. 
And you know, we experience that same kind of change even on a national level. We experience it as families, but even on a national level as well. Think of September 11th. Think about how different our world is now after September 11th. Even on a practical level. Think about your time at the airport now. How different your experience is. I just went last night to pick Jeanette and Jack up from the airport. And six years ago, I would have been able to walk right into the gate to greet them as they got off. Now, of course, we have to stay out. People in the media and the government use this phrase, post 9-11 world. Say, in a post 9-11 world, this works, this doesn't. So that's how significant that change was for us as a nation. Well, 2,000 years ago, the entire world experienced a history-changing event. And after this event, the entire world was, was different. Nothing was the same after this. The Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, He rose again. The resurrection of Christ changed history. Now, we spoke two weeks ago of Christ as the focus and the goal of creation. He's the main character of all history, is what we had said. If, and if Christ is that main character, like we said, if He's the central point of history, then His resurrection is the climax of that story. It's the climax of history. It's the high point. It's the most significant, most important event in all of history. I know that's a really strong claim. But Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's how important the resurrection is. Our faith is in vain without it. Well, I just want to start by stating a couple observations here about how the resurrection is usually handled and how we usually think about it in Christian circles. One, the resurrection is usually viewed as some sort of like capstone miracle for Jesus. That he did a lot of miracles in his life, but the resurrection was the final and the, the greatest of all. That it, it sort of validated everything that he had said uh, for his whole life. So we kind of view it as just this ultimate miracle that happened. And that observation kind of leads to the second here. Most books that you find that are written on the resurrection are probably concerned with just defending the historicity of it. They, they want to defend a bodily resurrection, and that's the main point of the book. And that's really about as far as it goes. Now, I'll say, of course, both of these things are true, and both of these things are very important, too. Well, Christ's resurrection did validate everything that he said. He predicted he'd rise from the dead, and he did. And it's crucial, absolutely crucial, that we defend a bodily resurrection, that it was a real physical bodily resurrection where Jesus's body had been dead, had been lifeless and then was raised to new life. I think what, what, what's difficult about these two points, though, is that a lot of times that's where we stop. The significance of the resurrection stops with those two points for us. And really, we can be left asking the question, what does the resurrection have to do with me? How does it affect me other than any other of Jesus' miracles in the Bible? What does this have to do with our salvation? Even, what does it mean for you tomorrow when you're starting another week of work? What does it mean for you this afternoon even, spending time with your friends and family? What does Christ's resurrection have to do with our everyday lives? 
And that's kind of what I want to look at this morning here. Paul says in our passage that Christ's resurrection was much more than just this capstone ultimate miracle that happened. It wasn't merely to validate all that Jesus had said, although it definitely did that. It certainly did that. Paul says it was something even more. He says it was the turning point in history. It was the dawning of a new day. When Christ rose from the dead, a new age in human history began. A new kingdom broke into the world. Something completely new in human history. And this was cosmic in scope. I mean, we can really say that it affected everything. Everything in the world was affected by Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ushered in this new age. He ushered in a new kingdom. And in that kingdom, He gives new life. So where I want to go today is to say that Christ's resurrection gives us new life. And ultimately, that new life is the power for real change in our life. That is the one source for ultimate change in our life. We're going to see that really Christ's resurrection has everything to do with every part of our lives. There's no part of our lives that goes untouched by Christ's resurrection. Just to kind of focus our discussion this morning, we'll look at it under three categories here. One, Christ's resurrection in the kingdom. Two, our membership in that kingdom. And three, our new life in the kingdom. So one, Christ's resurrection in the kingdom. Let's look back to the text here in verse 18. We dealt with the first half of this verse last week. We'll deal with the second this morning. He says two things specifically there. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And I want to take those in turn. First, Christ is the beginning. Of course, you think, well, the beginning of what? What's he talking about here? Christ is the beginning of a new kingdom here, of a new age. And in this new kingdom, all the effects of sin and the fall are eventually going to be healed and corrected. That's the scope of this kingdom here. That's what this new age is. Christ's resurrection was that decisive event that happened in history that has now begun this new age. This new age is in place now because of the resurrection. It set a process in motion. It was the start of something huge. And Christ is the beginning of that new age in all of history. If we look back at our text, though, At the verses right before our passage, 13 and 14, Paul actually helps us out here. He says that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there are these two kingdoms here, and these two kingdoms represent two different ways of life. The two ways of living that are set opposite each other here. One, the domain of darkness. And it's in that domain, this kingdom of darkness, we could even call it, that all of humanity at least initially finds themselves in. Everybody finds themselves in this this kingdom of darkness initially. That's who we are in our natural state, is to be a member of this domain of darkness. And this this is part of the curse that reaches all the way back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. That every person that's born is a member of this domain of darkness. And that's where we stand Unless God does something about it. So strong imagery there. Of this, It's a kingdom. It's the domain. There's rule. There's authority that is over us, even in this darkness. But Paul talks about another kingdom here, too. In verses 13 and 14. The other 
is this kingdom of the beloved Son. It's that kingdom that actually broke into the world. Broke into the world with the resurrection of Christ. This kingdom of darkness was broken into by the kingdom of God. This new age actually began with Christ's resurrection. And maybe it's helpful to think of it this way. that A whole new way of life became available in a way that it wasn't available before Christ's resurrection. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible describes the resurrection really well. That's a wonderful book, by the way, that I'd highly recommend. In this section, it's talking about Mary after she had left the empty tomb on Easter morning. Here's what it says describing this new age, this new kingdom. And it seemed to her that morning as she ran, almost as if the whole world had been made anew. Almost as if the whole world was singing for joy. The trees, tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, her heart. Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was He making even death come untrue? That's a beautiful way of describing how vast this kingdom is. This is what happened when Christ rose from the dead. Now, you might be thinking, well, okay, that's great. The world doesn't look much different to me today. Uh, There's still sin. Things are still very messy. There's still suffering. There's still pain. I'm still in pain. I'm still suffering. How can it be that a new age has begun in the midst of this old one? This new age that began with Christ's resurrection. How is that? Well, This is where we've got to see that while Christ's kingdom is here, and it's truly here, this kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness that Paul talks about in 13 and 14, has not yet fully been done away with. So we live in this overlap of the two ages. There's a tension there. You you may have heard the phrase, the already and not yet, or the now and the not yet. That the kingdom of God has broken in. This new age is here now in the present But it's not here like it will be when Christ returns. So we're stuck living in this uh, in this interim, in this messy period, in this tension of the ages here, where there's this real, genuine new age that has broken in, but yet we're still in the midst of this domain of darkness as well, although we're not subject to it anymore. And we'll we'll talk next week more about that, about the, the the scope of this and how we live in this world. But what we need to see this week is that, as Paul says in verse 18, Christ's resurrection is the beginning point of that new age. That's when that new age began, is when Christ rose from the dead. His resurrection inaugurated this new age. This kingdom was ushered in. This kingdom began with the resurrection of Christ. Well, secondly, Paul describes Jesus here as the firstborn from the dead. And that, that probably sounds a little bit familiar if you look back in the passage here. Paul has said that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation in verse 15. And if you remember, this is a hymn that was actually sung. So there's this nice poetry going on here where you've got some repetition. Just as he's the firstborn of creation, so he's the firstborn of new creation. So again, his purpose is to show that Christ is Lord even over this new age. That he rules over creation. saw two weeks ago, he rules over the church. We saw last week, and now he rules over this new creation. But even more than that, really, he, he opens the way. He leads the way into this resurrection age. There's no one who holds a higher 
or greater place of majesty or preeminence in this kingdom. This is the pinnacle. He's the pinnacle, the top, the most significant, the most important, even in this new age. There's nothing outside his power and control. He's Lord, not only of creation, but also of the new creation. He's the leader. He brings it forth. He begins this new age and everything. Paul says at the end of verse 18, Christ is preeminent. He's the focus even there. Now, briefly, think about what this means for the Colossian church, for the original audience here when they're hearing this. Remember, they're facing that false teaching that says there are these mystical powers that can be accessed. And in that way, you can have the spiritual experience. You can get at God in that way. And Paul's writing in response to that. Think about what this says to them. It says that Christ is preeminent over those powers, over those authorities that these false teachers are pushing. All these things that could, that could supposedly bring about this experience are under the rule of Christ. He has power even over death, is what this passage says. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's conquered death. There's no power in existence that's not in complete subjection to Him. And even more than that, Christ offers this new life and fellowship with God here. And of course, that far exceeds anything that these false teachers are offering. It's in Christ that we have access to God. And of course, that's well over and above what it is that the false teachers were trying to tap into and, and make use of. So I, I know that that's unusual language. That, that's odd for us. I know that's a difficult concept as well. But I want to stick with this here. and I want you to see where this goes, what Christ's resurrection means. He brought in this new age, this new kingdom, this new way of life. And something new began there, and He's Lord over all of it. That's what Paul's saying here. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. But how does that relate to us? How does Christ's resurrection relate to us? Or maybe even a better question right now is, how do we become members of that kingdom? Well, what's interesting is that Paul actually describes our salvation and refers to it in a number of spots as dying and rising with Christ. We've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. And this is all over Paul's letters. And you may have seen that phrase before and thought, what is Paul talking about? And that's a difficult concept and it doesn't make much sense to us just on the surface. I wasn't there when Christ died. I wasn't there when Christ rose. How can Paul say that we have died with Christ and that we've been raised with Him? Well, he says that because when we trust in Christ, when we put our faith in Him, we actually are united to Him. And that's how Paul understands our salvation. It's in union with Christ. It's to be found in Christ. And he uses that phrase over and over again. You see, it's just in use of prepositions. There's so much there. He says, in Him or through Him in so many places. We're united to Him and Christ so identifies with us in that way that it's as if we are actually incorporated into Him. That it's in this intimate, this vital, and even this living relationship that we have all the benefits of our salvation. Everything is to be found in union with Christ. It's that bond we have with Him. So Paul's not saying, of course, that we were there 2,000 years ago when Christ died and was raised. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when we are joined to Christ by faith, it's as if we died and rose with Him. Everything that would be true of us as having been right there with Him, is true of us by faith. We put our faith in Christ. We're united to Him. His life actually becomes our life. 
Now, one place that will help us understand this is Romans 6. If you want to turn back a few books in your Bible, I'm going to read a little section of this. Let's look at verses 5 through 11. This is where Paul uses that language, dying and rising with Christ. And of course, in this context, what he's saying is that we're, we're dead to sin. We've died to sin and now we have this new life. So this will help us out here. Verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When we are united to Christ by faith, His resurrection actually becomes our resurrection. That's a huge claim there, that all the benefits of His resurrection truly become ours. We possess those by faith. So what is true of Christ is really true of us because we're united to Him by faith. And we begin to experience this new resurrection life because we're united to the risen Jesus. That's where this new life comes from. And this may be a more helpful way to think about it. Being united to Christ is the doorway into this new kingdom. It's the doorway into this new age. When we're united to Him in His death and resurrection, we enter this new age. We walk into this new kingdom and as you walk through this door, you really become participants in this age. This is our life now. This is life in the new age. It's the new life that we have in this new kingdom of the beloved Son. And Paul says right before uh, the passage we just read in Romans 6, 4, that we've died and risen with Christ so that we too might walk in newness of life. Now, think about that just for a second. That is an incredible description of the Christian life. That we have this new resurrection life now. We have this resurrection life now. We experience real blessings of the resurrection now. And of course, not like we will at the end of, at the end of time when Christ returns, but we do get a real and genuine taste now of the resurrection. So much so that Paul says we're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We're to live as resurrected people with new life. That's what Paul says here. And this is important too. He's not saying let's just make believe like children. Let's just play like we've been raised with Christ. We know you really haven't, but let's just go ahead and act like you have been. That, this isn't some kind of thought experiment or some kind of mind game where you're trying to fool yourself into thinking, well, okay, I'm going to act as though I, I've been raised with Christ. He's saying that when you are united to Christ by faith, you really begin to enjoy the benefits of your resurrection now. You begin to enjoy those benefits right now. So really, we can say that the way that Christ's resurrection really, it becomes our resurrection in some way. 
that we actually lay hold of these benefits of our final resurrection right now. Again, we could ask the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to have these benefits of the resurrection now? It still sounds pretty abstract like that. What this is saying is that we have new life now in Christ. That we are members of this kingdom and we have new life in this kingdom. By being united to Christ, we actually become possessors of that. We become a part of this new kingdom. We walk through this door into this new kingdom. And in that new kingdom, we possess this new resurrection life. Now, what, what are the implications of that? What does that mean to say we have this new life in the kingdom? Well, it means, one, we're no longer slaves to sin, as Paul says in Romans 6 there. That means that real change is possible. Real, genuine change is possible. You're united to Christ. And that resurrection life is yours now. It's your life now. And it's in that relationship that you have everything you need for real change. Again, think back to the Colossians here. They can't look elsewhere. Real growth, real change comes in this person, in this Lord Jesus Christ alone. This means, there's another implication, when we talk about loving God, loving people, we talk about moving out into the community and seeking to, to love people, it means that we're not just talking. When we talk about marriages being healed, struggling relationships to really be genuinely healed, we really mean that. It's not as though we're just playing church. We're not up here just saying, you know, this is something we need to, to act like we're doing. We're saying this is really possible because of Christ's resurrection. There's true hope for real change and real growth here. Peter describes this hope as a living hope. In 1 Peter 1.3, he says this, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this resurrection of Christ gives us real hope for real change. There's this new life that we now have in union with Christ that gives us living hope. It's overflowing with hope. You're no longer a slave to sin. There is real hope for real change in your life. Now, at the same time, even as we look at this and think of the hope that we have, the actual risen life of Christ that is in us and that we now live, there's a real struggle to think that way. There's a real struggle when we look at our own lives and see that there are so many sins that we still feel as though we're held captive to. I know I, I, even this week as I'm looking at this passage, I'm thinking I, I'm a people pleaser. I have tremendous pride issues. And I'm self-centered. I'm focused so much on myself. And those sorts of sins aren't the kinds of sins where it's like, well, you know, I yelled at my son or something like that, where it's like, I've got to stop yelling at my son. These are the types of sins that feel deep-rooted. These are the types of sins that feel like they're so much a part of you that you can almost, it's hard to imagine yourself being free from them. And it's when we recognize those sorts of things and when we're honest with our own sin in that way and then we look to these passages, it can be a real struggle to see what Paul says. Where it really does still feel like you're slave to sin. Where you can't act otherwise. I don't know if that's your experience, but it's certainly 
certainly is mine. So I, I want to be realistic when we talk about this resurrection life, because I know this is something that, that we all struggle with. I don't want to paint this picture of the Christian life that says there's no struggle. I don't want to give you the impression either that this change happens overnight, because it doesn't. That's not the way it works. Here's a, here's a bit of comfort. Paul understands this. It's not as though he, he doesn't have a good idea of what the Christian life really is. He's not wearing rose-colored glasses as he writes and paints his picture of the Christian life. One theologian points out that Paul's most incredible words about the power of the resurrection, of the new life that we have in Christ, comes in 1 Corinthians 15. You might be familiar with that. And if you're familiar at all with the book of 1 Corinthians, with that letter, Paul's writing to maybe the worst, most corrupt church in the New Testament. There's sexual immorality. There's adultery. There's actual, like, pagan bow-down-to-idol sort of worship going on. There was the rich hating the poor and keeping them out of the Lord's Supper. So, I mean, this church has real problems. And yet, Paul is able to give them this tremendous hope of change in 1 Corinthians 15. He knows who he's talking to, and yet he says these things to them. So, real hope for change there. Paul understands this. I want to try and offer a little bit more perspective on this. A couple things here. One, this change happens slowly. When I say that this resurrection provides hope for real change, we're not saying it happens overnight. It doesn't happen that way. The progress is slow. It happens over a long period of time. But we have to recognize that it's still real change, though. It's just a, it's a slow process. There's real hope there, but we need to have a proper perspective on it. Now, you may have heard it said the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. And that's helpful. And when I say marathon, I'm not talking about a Cindy Crane marathon, which would be a sprint for most of us. I'm talking about a Brian Davis marathon that is nice and slow. It takes time. It's slow. A second thing. The struggle here is to believe what the Bible says is true about Christ and about us. We've got to have eyes of faith as we look to the Scriptures in this case. And I'm not talking about some kind of check-your-brain-at-the-door kind of faith. But we need to, to realize that our ultimate authority cannot be our experience and our feelings. I don't feel like I've been set free from the dominion of sin. I still feel that I'm a slave to sin. We can't look at it that way. The Bible says in Jeremiah that the heart is deceptive above all things. Who can know it? Our hearts will deceive us. Our feelings will deceive us. That's, that's what we have to fight against. The Bible has to be that which forms and shapes and molds our understanding of who we are and who Christ is. So we've got to live in light of who the Bible says we are in Christ. That's the challenge. That's Paul's point even for a lot of Colossians. If you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, If then you've been raised with Christ... He's implying, of course, that yes, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. And this is how he understands the Christian life. We're to live in light of the reality of our dying and rising with Christ. We're to live as members of this new kingdom. And there is so much hope in this way of life. It, it, 
This isn't just a bare command that Paul gives to seek the things that are above. In our relationship with Christ, in our union with Him, we share in His very risen life, which is the source of change for us. It is what's going to make us capable of living the Christian life. And do you see how that provides a different perspective even on the Christian life? Christianity is not, your sins are paid for, now get your act together. It's not, you've been saved and now you better shape up. That's not what the Christian life is. But, if we misread Paul, or just read sections of his letters and read them out of context, that's what you can come away thinking. All of Paul's commandments to us, even in this book of Colossians, are based on what is true of us in Christ. He's calling us to live out this resurrection life that is ours because we're united to Christ by faith. He's not commanding this in a vacuum. He's saying, you have the resource here. You are united to Christ. He is your source for new life. Now live this life that I've given to you. In a sense, he's really saying, live as you are or live out who you are. Live as one who has died and risen with Christ. And as Paul says in Romans 6.11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So because Christ is risen from the grave, there is hope for real change. That those sins that feel so deep-rooted, that feel so much a part of you, can actually be done away with. Not overnight, but over time, they can be. That's the power of the resurrection. That's what the resurrection accomplished, amongst other things. Christ began this new age, this new kingdom. There's a new way of life now in His resurrection. And by faith, we're united to Him in His death and resurrection, which means that that life is ours. We possess this resurrection life now. That power for real change that flows from Christ to us. We live that life. Of course, He's the author of that new life. He's the author of that real change. We're not going to find it anywhere else. And again, we lay hold of Him. We grasp at Him. We cling to Him completely by faith. Well, if you're visiting this morning and maybe you're skeptical or at least unfamiliar with what Christianity is, what, what it claims, this is one of the claims that the Bible makes. There's no hope of lasting change outside of Christ. We're slaves to sin outside of Christ. There's no hope for real change. You may be able to temporarily modify your behavior in some way, but real lasting change is found only in Christ and it's there because of His resurrection. Only by being joined to Him in His death and resurrection is that change possible. But, at the same time, that promise of this risen King is that any who call on Him will be united to Him and will be changed. He freely offers Himself in that way as well. So there's tremendous hope. This is the significance of the resurrection. is that we can live our lives even this week knowing that there's real power for real change. The resurrection, yes, was bodily. It was important that it was that. It did validate everything that Jesus said. But even more than that, it brought in a new way of life. A new way of living was brought forth by Christ's resurrection. That's the life that we live. That's the Christian life. Live out who it is that you are in Christ. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we confess that these concepts are difficult. We don't think in terms of these new age, these new ages and these kingdoms. Lord, we, uh, we confess that to You. We pray, Lord, that by Your Spirit You would help us to understand that. We pray that You would help us to cherish and rejoice in the fact that Christ rose from the dead. We pray, Lord, that we would look to You in hope knowing that we can be changed because this life is now our life. Lord, we thank You for that hope. We pray that we would look to You as the author of change. That we would not trust our own experience, our own feelings, because they can deceive us and they will deceive us and they do deceive us. Lord, may we be captivated by Your Word. May Your Word be our final authority our understanding of who we are and who You've made us to be and who You promised to make us to be in the future. Lord Jesus, we thank You for that hope. We pray You change us today in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Oh